Welcome to Chapter 3 of HealthSystemCIO.com's interview with Karen DeSalvo, former National Health IT Coordinator and Assistant Secretary for Health. In this segment, we talk about how having ground-level conversations can improve the health of a community, why it's critical to be open to different career opportunities, and the phrase more leaders should be willing to say. There is so much potential for, for what could be done, and I guess a lot of it does come down to using that data to, to show improvements and kind of selling these things, mm-hmm. these initiatives. I'm going to give you an example um, of disconnect, and uh, of connect and disconnect. How about that? Uh, a community that was not in our report, but I've more recently learned about, called Nevada, Missouri. It's a place where Cerner wanted to work with community to improve health, wanted to learn about what they as a company, a corporation, could do to advance a community's health in, in partnership with them. And so they brought together a coalition and provided some seed funding. They um, set out some shared goals and uh, realized as a community that they needed to target the leading causes of death, which are you know, essentially nutritional and physical fitness and tobacco use. They did a lot of the, the things that you do from a healthcare lens of encouraging people to be more active and some community efforts. They used things like, you know, movement trackers to get people to exercise and have competition. But there was one neighborhood that, that was not exercising, and so they wanted to understand why. And they went in and did some community-level conversations. In public health, we call those um, community health improvement and assessment plans, CHOPs. And so they, they did this naturally, uh, meaning without knowing that that's what it was called, but that's sort of where the process led them. And they learned that for that community, they wanted to exercise, but they didn't want to go outside and walk because there were a lot of unleashed dogs in the neighborhood because there wasn't a leash law. So the community came together, wrote and passed a leash law ordinance, which then freed the community to go up and exercise, and now they are. So it's a First of all, a perfect story about how the private sector and the public sector, um, big business and small business and healthcare and public health can come together to create change in a community. How something as simple as a leash law prevents wellness, but you wouldn't have known about it if you weren't really to ground. You you couldn't know that from Washington, right? You have to know that from being a community. They solved it themselves, right? It was a policy problem, but they solved it. Um, And then I was asking about the data. And, you know, the team was using county health rankings, which is very commonly what public health uses. But that data is uh, about three years out of date. The the report that just came out in 17, it's wonderful. We all use it in public health. I certainly use it. But in reality, it's stale, right? So they don't actually know how well they're doing. But here's this innovative technology company, Cerner, and all these healthcare folks who are involved. And... Still, even there, they're not using sort of the EHR real-time data from the community. Mm-hmm. And so I, I encourage them to, to sort of think again about other sources of data and could they get a little more timely to keep the, the community energized. So I think it's a, it's a beautiful story. I'm excited about all of it, but I think it reminds us that even when we have the data, sometimes we forget to use it, um, and, and we're still relying on more traditional public health measures. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Is it something where kind of just need more people to start carrying the torch for it? Or um, I I know that that, that's also one of the the tricky things is how to increase the need for these types of public health programs. Yeah, well, you know, you asked me earlier what I've been up up to, and I think (laughs) that this is exactly part of the journey I'm on. You know, we we talked about what needs to happen and why, and now it's how. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm learning from, from communities how they have done it 
and how some of them are sustaining it to try to understand what are the undergirdings and principles of it. I do think it's more complex than just leash laws. I'm perfectly aware of that. There's some elements to that, though, that have to do with civic engagement and the ability to to get to ground and, and have those those local structural relationships. But I, I think um, what I'm hearing also is the how is has to do with aligning funding streams and policy and then some interesting more academic work that has to do with if you have savings in the healthcare system. So let's say you pass a leash law and um, people exercise more so their glucose gets better, their, their A1Cs get better, and the clinics then get better payments because they get a quality bonus, right, or the ACOs do better in their shared savings. I don't know if that's going to happen in this community. I'm just hypothesizing an an imaginary community, right? But let's just say that you went upstream and you fixed the leash law that then resulted in the healthcare system having some shared savings. You would think, though, that some of those shared savings should accrue to that collective group, that coalition that came up with the idea to, to pass the leash law in the first place. Right. right. So it should accrue back to public health using a very loose definition of public health. And we don't have that kind of structure right now. And so I think when you talk about how, it's not just the how for the local groups, but it's also how do we make sure that when we have savings in one pocket in the healthcare system, it accrues to the right pocket, um, which is further upstream. And it's going to, I think, increasingly be for these for these kinds of coalitions or this new public health 3.0 model. So I, I want to understand the how. I think what surprised me so much in leaving is I thought that when I walked out of the door, you know, we do the report, it would be done, and there would be a new administration, and nobody would ever talk about public health 3.0 again because we were done. And people keep talking about it. I just got invited to another meet, another conference where they want me to come. I'm so excited. Oh, nice. You know, talk about 3.0, do some community conversations. Um, as I said, I was just recently in the Midwest and a couple of places. I'm going to be doing some more visits. I'm going to Ohio. I just, um, I'm excited that it's taking on a life of its own because it's the right thing. People know this is where we have to go. The, the public health community does and, and, and many others. We need to figure out how um, and, and, and pretty quickly. And I'm thrilled to get to keep trying to solve what I think is the most important challenge that, that we have in this country. And if anybody wasn't sure if social ills were causing Morbidity and mortality, if it sounds like a vague idea, we only need to look at, at death from substance use disorders, which are, as the headlines have said, deaths of despair. Uh, we've reached a point in this country where what's killing people is hopelessness and lack of economic opportunity. It always has killed people. It's just been more invisible. But now that it's touching more communities and it's affecting life expectancy overall in the U.S., it's getting uh, an awful lot more attention. So uh, I, I couldn't possibly be more passionate about it, but I also don't think that it's going to be solved by public health alone or by healthcare alone or by technology alone or by any other sector. And so I'm spending my hours uh, thinking through what's the right way to build the right bridges at the national and local level so we can quickly get to how and get some solutions that work for everyone. Yeah. Now, looking at your career path, now you find yourself focused more solely on being a student, like you said, but but looking at this public health. And it's really interesting to me the different places your career has taken you. And can you just just give some thoughts about the importance of of staying open to different opportunities and how you, you can be surprised by the direction that your career takes you? Oh, um, my, my career has been a really interesting journey. Some of it forced because I, 
I had to make my own way in the, through working and pay my own schooling. And so just to be truly honest, I mean, some of it I stumbled over, like public health. I don't think I would have found it if I hadn't had to work and hadn't been offered this great opportunity at the State Laboratory Institute where they paid me this, you know, like ungodly sum of money per hour um, so that I could afford to live. <laughs> and I mean, when I say ungodly, you know, it was like whatever it was, 10 or $12 an hour, but that was a lot of money in the in the late 80s and it allowed me to work and go to school. And in, in medical school, I got a National Health Service Corps scholarship, which meant that I was going to do primary care. It meant that I was going to do outpatient care. And it meant that I was going to probably stay in an urban environment, though there were other options in the, the core. And what that meant also then was instead of doing a sort of academic global health kind of public health journey or going to be an EIS officer, I went into clinic at Charity Hospital. And I had a really quick schooling from mm-hmm. patients there about what really mattered to them and what was really on their mind in a way that medical school and residency did not get me. I mean, I was these were my patients for seven years, and they told me things they'd never told anyone else. And I learned a lot from them. And that just got me to really thinking about how I could use my skills in a way that would amplify their voice. And it caused me to very early in my career have this intersection of practical public health and practical medicine that I think when joined up with technology in particularly the aftermath of Katrina, I, I fell into technology. Though I've said before, I was the, charity, the medical records committee at Charity Hospital and it was really the first time that we were talking about electronic health records, but this was, it was way too early to even think about it. It was the 90s, you know, and, but after Katrina, from necessity, we were building clinics, you know, from tents and card tables on the streets, and we needed to know who we were serving, and I needed population-level data. We couldn't have pieces of paper, and so very quickly, my clinics and the others said, we got to go, we got to get on electronic health records, and it just became a necessary part of doing better for the people that we were serving at a population level. And as I shared, just r- rapidly translated into, oh, this brought me back to public health again. Because this is really about everybody working together to create the conditions in which uh, this community can, can be healthy and it's going to be more than a great healthcare system. It's going to take attention to all the determinants of health. And so I definitely have always been open to the experience and journey, I think, but I have stumbled into things because of what life has brought me. But when there was a fire, I ran to it. I didn't leave from Katrina. I didn't, I didn't try to get out of being National Health Service Corps, not being clinic. I, I tried every opportunity exposure when I was at the, the State Laboratory Institute because I, I wanted to learn as much as I could, thinking it might be the only time I experienced those things, but I also wanted to be of use if I could. And I think that's sort of a theme in my life. And I don't entirely know what's next. I mean, I'm unemployed is what I am, right? Come noon, January 20th, I no longer had a job. And it's the first time in my career that I've had to ask myself, absent disaster, absent expected change of timing in your medical career, absent new mayor getting elected and needing help in public health, whatever, absent being called to service in Washington, where do you want to press your shoulder? How do you want to make a difference in the world? And and I do think the journey is, uh, I want to learn right now so that I can make sure that I'm prepared when that knock happens at the door. And so maybe the, the most important thing I could say is find your true north, which is, I, I sort of know where mine is, apply uh, skills that you have. And if you don't have them, try to keep gaining and learning throughout the journey. Uh, always, um, when you're not sure, tap back into where you think you can make the most difference with the skills that you're, you're best at and where you feel most passionate. And 
don't um, prefix, I've got to have this job by a certain date because I think that's a, um, a missed opportunity to make the most difference but also get the most out of the opportunities that come your way in life. Right. That's, that's good advice. And um, with a lot of the leadership in healthcare and in health IT, I know that we see more of a variety than, than before in, in the backgrounds people come from. And I think that, that that will only benefit the industry going forward to have all those different perspectives. You know, I want to say something. Um, you, you talked about openness. One of the things that I'm not afraid to do is say, I don't know. And I think people need to be comfortable with that. You don't have to know everything or be expert in everything. Um, but on the other hand, I think sometimes, and, and maybe women are more prone to this, we think that because we don't know or we're not experienced, we shouldn't try something new mm. um, or make a shift. And I, I think there are some core foundational leadership and management um, and intellectual curiosity and emotional um, maturity skills that you bring to any situation and they can be applied if you're good with complexity. Complexity is similar in all kinds of situations and I think just having the confidence to know that you can take experiences that you've had in life and if an, something new comes, be open to trying it even if it's a little bit out of your comfort zone. Um, but also when you're, when you're taking on that new task and I'll use the Austin National Coordinator as a great example, but even when I was health commissioner, I you know, stepped right into being public health leadership. I, I knew that I was going to have to say to my staff and to people, my stakeholders, I don't know what that is but teach me, help me learn, tell me what to read, and, and uh, I will get as smart about it as quickly as I can and see how we can put it all together. So there's a vulnerability part to it, but there's a confidence, and it's a very hard thing to, ba- to balance. Um, and, and I just encourage people to always be thinking of that balance as they're being open to new opportunities that come their way. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point about you see those statistics sometimes about men and women, if they're not 100% sure that they could do a job, that, that men are so much more likely to, to go for it. And I think that sometimes maybe all of us, and especially women, need that push to, to get in there, to try it, and to see how you can grow rather than just saying, you know, I, I'm not ready for that. Yeah, no, I, th- I, think, that's, I think that's true. And I, you know, I certainly saw it in my, in my junior faculty when I'd hire, I'd hire cohort of equally qualified men and women and you could throw the, the male faculty on, on the teaching wards and they would act with all due bravado that they knew everything and of course they didn't and the stereotype of the new junior female faculty where they'd say yeah, I'm not really sure let's go look that up together and yeah. the students didn't always react great to that to be frank with you but I did notice over the course of my tenure, 10 years of doing that that the world began to be more accepting of this balance of confidence and vulnerability and I saw that women became more confident and men became more, more appropriately vulnerable and I think that's a healthy thing because if you just want to get into patient safety, it's a very healthy thing to make sure that if you don't know, you're willing to say it. But, yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I hope the world continues to evolve and people are more comfortable with that reflection just as much as they are with the confidence. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that covers what I wanted to talk to you about. I could definitely talk to you more, but um, in the interest of your time, um, I'll let you go. But thank you so much for your time. This has been so interesting, and I really think it's going to be a great perspective for, for our readers. Well, it was my pleasure, and I really enjoyed talking with you. And By the way, great questions. Thanks again, and I hope to meet you at some point in the future. Yep, it'd be great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from healthsystemcio.com. To hear other podcasts, 
visit our website or subscribe to our account in iTunes at healthsystemcio.com backslash podcast.